You've scanned the headlines, read the articles, and liked the posts. Now listen to the experts themselves in the Future of Work podcast, presented by AllWork.Space. Today in the Future of Work podcast, we welcome Andrea Pirotti-Dreinchak. Driving revenue for fast-moving and innovative companies is what she does. With global experience in 65-plus countries, her strategies are nimble and built to achieve a sustained competitive advantage. Are you ready? Good morning, and welcome to the Future of Work podcast. We're lucky today to have uh, Andrea Parati with us, and I've been a fan of Andrea's for more than a decade. Andrea, welcome to the Future of Work podcast. Thank you, Frank. I'm delighted to be here. Well, you know, we're really excited about this conversation today, and I wanted to start off by... I know you're a very empathetic marketer. You you really tear into who the the, the buyer is and, and, and who the consumer is. So talk to me about how you capture the heart and the mind of the buyer and the role of conversational marketing that you feel will be played out in the future of work. Yeah, and I think now more than ever that this type of marketing is critical for the future of work. And I've been... What, what, Conversational marketing. What is conversational marketing? Well, conversational marketing is a way of engaging and having a dialogue with your uh, prospective buyer and with your stakeholders. And conversational marketing on a very superficial level, people will be like, oh, it's a chatbot. But it's so much more than that, right? So the idea of you have to start with understanding what your storyline is. What problem are you solving for? Both on an objective level, yeah, I'm solving to drive operational efficiencies or I'm driving to reduce costs or I'm whatever the needs of the business are. But where conversational marketing really comes in is when you understand that subjective factor that you're solving for. And typically for the decision maker, for the decision influencer, for the user, that subjected factor is rooted in fear. Okay. And so if you can identify the objective factor that you're solving for, and then understand, and that's the mind, I want to save money. It's got to make business sense. Because at the end of the day, this is a B2B decision. But then if you can get to that underlying subjective factor, I'm fearful to make the wrong office space decision. I'm fearful to make a recommendation to my company that may be out of the norm. I um, have an issue where I, I need to be close to home. Whatever that subjective factor is, if you can tap into that and then solve it through a series of dialogues, you've won. Well, those dialogues, a lot of those dialogues are as much, if not more, sales dialogues than marketing dialogues. How do you gather the data in advance so that you can frame those conversations from a marketing perspective instead of just add some mentoring to the sales team and say, here's how you do it, guys? Because it's really, you've got to have a massive amount of information to frame those conversations in marketing. Yeah, well, that's, that's very true. You do. And these conversations come from uh, when we're looking at the future of work, we are not only looking at firmographic information, right? So we want to understand the sector of the company that we're working with, the decision makers in the company, is it the CEO, CFO, CHRO, the influencers and the users? So 
We want to also understand geographically where these people are coming from. We know that in our world, typically people will travel 15 minutes max, not miles, but minutes max in order to get to the workplace. Um, and then also we want to understand demographically who is that person making the decision. Uh, uh, and, and what is the profile, the demographic profile of that person, but then also psychographic. What are the motivators in making that decision? And all this information can be found um, through research. So third-party research, and there are a number of, uh, of um, brokers of uh, data out there, if you will, uh, that provide that research from AllWork to Instant to CoStar to um, a whole bunch of platforms for to capture that third-party data. But then you also want to use your own data, right? And even if you don't have a lot of data from your own user base, what you want to do is you want to use lookalike data. But quite frankly, I'm a big proponent of just talking to the customer. I have to tell you that the most, the best way to find out information about your customer, what their needs are, what their motivations are, is to, number one, talk to them, one-on-one -on -one interviews, focus groups, and then validate your discovery through um, uh, uh, questionnaires where you just ask very simple questions, three to five questions, and I could rattle off those questions in a moment. Um, and that is really a very simple way of understanding who your uh, customer is and what their needs and wants are. Okay, I'm going to agree with that 100%, but I'm going to challenge something. If I only talk to my customers to get the why did they choose us information, I'm only going to be talking to the ones that did choose us, not the ones that didn't. Therefore, how do I understand how to broaden my marketing base as opposed to ultimately it gets narrower and narrower and narrower because I keep focusing on a smaller and more specific group. <laughs> so how do I broaden my, my universe? This is a brilliant question. And I, again, I'll always start oh, with, yeah. I know, yeah. so I'm always going to start with the basics, right? Because a lot of uh, you know, money often gets into investment, often gets into the way of us discovering, right? So I'm always going to go very grassroots, very kind of bootstrap before I go into spending a whole bunch of money on research. But the fact is, as a category, if you're humming along for the office product, we are not converting 80% of the people who contact us. Uh, for the office product. For the virtual office product, it's a little bit less. It's probably 50 to 60. And for the meeting room product where we get the most, uh, and the co-working product where we get the most volume, typically we, uh, for most providers, they don't even know who this is because they are not tracking it because the transaction is happening so quickly. Again, we can get into that in a moment, but that's reality. So the fact is I do as I'm a huge proponent of contacting those 80% of people who inquired but didn't convert to find out why. And again, that's a very simple outbound questionnaire to say, hey, we know that you inquired. We'd love to, do, we'd love to understand what we can do to earn your business. Um, would you please let us know? uh why you know where you've gone or what you've done three to five questions in that questionnaire this is something that most companies don't do but i i would ask and, and um 
how responsive are, is that group? Are, are they really responsive? Um, uh, because most companies don't do that. Most companies don't say, let's call the losers. You know, they only want to talk to the winners. Uh, so are the, are, are the people that pass, are they responsive in giving um, valid answers or is it just kind of goofy stuff? Is it, is it information but, or data but not real information and knowledge? Yeah, well, the interesting thing is, is that oftentimes I'll use that tactic to revise the dead. Uh, revive the dead and to revive the living. And oftentimes they don't even know that they're dead. They have just prolonged their decisions. So the fact is, yes, they are responsive. This is a warm list. This is somebody who's contacted you with a need. And it's not like they're contacting, you know, the Ferrari dealer to go for a test drive. They have, they have a need for an office or a workspace. Uh, and so they are making an investment to call you. And the fact is, in terms of response rates, you'll get like a 30% open rate. It's a warm list, right? 30 to 35% open rate. And if you give them something in return, um, which I'm a proponent of as a consumer, I don't like it when Delta contacts me or Clear or whomever, because I travel a lot, contacts me and says, we need your feedback and we're not going to give you anything in return. You have to give a token in return. It's not a payoff, but yeah. it's a, hey, you're investing in us. Let us in turn invest in in you. So you do get a return. No, I, I, I agree that that uh, you, you should you should never call upon anyone whether it's a, a friend for dinner or, or a, someone whose information you want without bringing a gift. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very, very simple. If you bring a gift, you'll almost always be welcome. That's true. Uh, if you don't bring a gift, you might not get invited back. Uh, so, you know, you, you do want to think through that uh, overall. You know, as, as we look towards marketing and we look towards changes in the way marketing is, is, is managed, in particular, let's focus on the, the flexible workspace sector for a second. Uh, that's where you have a ton of expertise. I know you've worked for global companies managing gazillion dollar budgets and, and uh, dealing with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of customers. Um, uh, you know, so when we talk about the world of flex, how human, how one-to-one -one does your marketing have to be? Um, uh, who's in charge, really? Uh, is it the customer uh, or is it the marketer? Uh, is it the product creator or is it the, the actual end user? See, if you have the ability and the deep pockets to gobble up, to use money, to gobble up market share, and you can give free rent up, you know, for a year and uh, you, you can advertise, you know, till the cows come home and stay top of mind and buy the buy eyeballs, uh, capturing hearts and minds, not so important. You're going to get that business, right? But when you are a, uh, a smaller provider and your competitor is going to outprice you 50 to one, you have to focus and you have to craft a strategy, invest in a strategy to capture hearts and minds. Um, and it becomes very powerful and it becomes the foundation for a sustainable competitive advantage because when you solve for the mind, there are a lot of people who can solve for the mind. But when you've captured the heart, there's uh, it's more difficult for you to break away. So who's the decision maker? Well, we have shifted from 
uh, we used to say that we could take every 20 years ago, we would say that we could take every decision maker out to dinner uh, across the United States and fill our, our portfolio of spaces. It was that small. We'd have messages to the CFO talking about taking bricks off the balance sheet, the CHRO, we would talk about um, we would talk about, uh, you know, recruiting and retaining talent to the to the to the property person. We'd say put 20 percent of your property, uh, you know, into flex and to the CEO. We'd say, listen, make your your property portfolio as agile as your business. And you'll notice that all my messaging there is very in the mind. It has nothing to do with making a heart connection. Right. Mm -hmm. So we've been working on making a, a mind and heart connection for a while now, but it was never more prevalent. The tipping point truly was the pandemic when people literally had to make a decision for the safety of themselves and the, for the safety of their families in order to come back to the office. And that was our tipping point. Um, there's a company called TimeWise out of the UK that has done a much, bunch of research and has helped people get out uh, uh, in terms of bringing women back into the workforce uh, be, because uh, where people work has been a barrier in terms of bringing women back to the workforce. But now that the pandemic uh, made both men and women, uh, 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 that, that decision of where and when to work, it, it touched every human. And so... And so the, the decision-making process has changed from 1% of uh, office workers really to the entire population of office workers. And in fact, these office workers are voting with their feet and they're saying, listen, I'm willing to take less pay. I want a hybrid working solution. 66% of people right now are working from someplace outside of the core office. And businesses are responding because 12% of the jobs right now that are being advertised are being advertised with hybrid work solutions. So the decision maker is every single human that is sitting in that seat and they're forcing change and they're forcing change of that at the 1% who can actually take money out of their own wallet in order to affect that change. And that's the business leaders. Well, you know, the... manner in which decisions are made uh, for a workspace um, or just the way people work in general, not just the space, but the total environment uh, that, that they're working within, because uh, the commute has as much to do with the location as the space itself. Uh, the community, community within space um, has a lot to do with it these days. It's not where you're working with, but who you're working with. Uh, that, that seems to be very important. And in that human to human context, how do you get those things apart uh, or across to the consumer without making it sound too fluffy? Uh, because, you know, it, it, it all, always sounds good. Oh, we got this wonderful community. Yeah, my community is better than your community. Oh, my community is the best community. Uh, uh, we have the, the coolest this and the best that. How do you prove that? How do you demonstrate that? when a person has to move into a space before they can really experience that? Uh -huh. That's a good question. Well, first of all, this whole, the whole notion of community drives me bananas, right? Because, you know, the, the, the fact is, is that the decision-making process, and I've done tons of research over this, is when people are choosing a place to work is number one, do you, do you have a location where I need to be next to my client, close to home, 
uh, close, you know, wherever that is in the hot spot of my category. Do you have a location where I need to be? Number two is, uh, can I afford you? And number three is, can I envision myself working there? And that I think is where the community factor comes in. But community isn't going to bring you to a workspace. It might, uh, you know, it might help you to, to, stay there, if you will, but it doesn't, we all know this is a, a category. It doesn't, well, <laughs> I think a lot of us know this is a category that we, um, that it won't bring you there. So um, very interesting. We have a location at 22 Bishop's Gate, which is the tallest building, if you will, tallest occupied building in all of Europe. It's a very cool building. And at any given point in time, every, any month, I will have 500 and, it, and people who understand this category is understanding the future of work is in play right here, right now at this location. I will have 500 individual day pass users come in and out of that office every month. I've had very interesting requests for um, from enterprise customers and closed several deals of uh, customers who are buying 50 memberships so that their people can come in once a week to work from that environment, but not in a closed meeting room, but in an open space so that they can be together, but also amongst people. Um, and so the way that the, uh, the culture, the community is being experienced is, is very different, but it is being experienced in the moment. They're living it. Uh, and then they're growing within the space as well. So it's the location that got them there. It was the right price that enabled them to buy. But then, as they experience the uh, as they experience the environment and the culture, uh, whether it's on uh, a day basis or whether it's within a group that they are uh, that they're staying and expanding. The other way, Frank, is that there are some platforms that are really kind of cool where individuals are going into the space and then within the platform, they're recommending the space to other people and to colleagues to come. And they're rating the space and they're saying, this is my favorite space or meet me here on Thursday. So it, it's kind of a rippling effect where individuals are experiencing the space and then they're sharing uh, that space uh, within their network of, of, of well, you you've just transitioned from <clears throat> a variety of marketing issues um, and uh, really extending life cycle over to the concept of social capital, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's a big uh, a big element uh, and. I think when you're looking at marketing, there's something to be said, you know, there's always a cost of customer acquisition and it, it can be somewhat uniform and say it, it costs us X amount to drive Y amount of people through our funnel. And then we get the customer um, and depending on how, you, how your, your funnel works. But the best way to reduce your cost of customer acquisition is by extending the life cycle of your customer. So you don't need to acquire as many. That's right. Uh, that is the, the, the key to so many things in life is that repeat customer, the long-term customer, the loyal customer, and that's what we're trying to build. So the marketing process, I would, I would say, doesn't stop when the customer purchases. 
the marketing process has to be sustained through their entire life cycle to reinforce why they purchased and to bring new gifts, if you will, to them so that they sustain their loyalty. Um, nothing brings you back to a restaurant faster than the that you've been loyal to than the maitre d' coming over and bringing you a glass of wine and uh, on the house. Oh, hey, it's good to see you here again. No, we'd like to. There are little things that you do. So I, I think you could, could comment on that. And then when you, you deal with the concept of social capital, basically earning a place in a community by recommending it, um, do centers uh, in the flex world, do projects in the flex world, and um, uh, even as large as IWG, do they reward these micro-influencers in any way? Or is it just something that they hope will work and they try and encourage, but there is no, again, reward for it? Yeah, and the factor of reward is an incredibly interesting. So to go in, you know, long back, you know, when I was getting my MBA, they talked about, we learned, we learned about the, uh, the power of post, of post marketing. Right. So that you'd so this is like fine wine. So the idea of the initial acquisition um, is just the first part to delighting your customers from the moment that they move in. And every day there afterwards is like fine wine to people who understand marketing and understand the power of uh, of the of the uh the customer, if you will. And so, yeah, I think it's an, it, it is as much as guiding the way. I think within the future of work, this is a very new area for most. It's, it's, it's 20 years old for me and, 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 you know, and, and longer for you, Frank. And so we eat, breathe, sleep this. <laughs> and so in a good way. And so we eat, breathe, sleep this. And we understand, I mean, 20 years ago, I introduced a global membership program that was on featured on the cover of USA Today. That was 20 years ago. <laughs> You know, so we, we, we've understood where this was going to go. We've understood that, that offices and workspace would be as transactional as a hotel. We've been preparing for this, right? And so one of the things that's really important, especially with making a human connection and especially with retaining customers, is guiding the process and saying, listen, we got you. We understand what your needs are today, and we also understand what your needs are long into the future. <clears throat> and starting that retention process even before they buy. So you, I, I know we've all experienced this, is that from the very keyword, co-working, people will type in the keyword co-working. But what they'll really want is a private office, or what they'll really want is a dedicated desk, although they don't even know that dedicated desks exist. What they really want to do is hot desk. So this whole idea of guiding and using our collective intelligence that we've captured over the last couple of decades, guiding the process on the intake, helping the customer to, or the member, whatever we want to call them, to create the right workspace plan for them that's going to support, enable, and enhance both their business and the individuals who are going to be sitting in those seats, and then working with them to adapt that product mix and how they engage with that product throughout their life cycle with us, guiding them, because this is a very big decision. Facility cost is the second largest fixed cost behind people. So the choosing the, getting this right can make or break a business. So 
from the initial intake, guiding them through, creating the right product mix for them, delighting them from the moment they sign the agreement to move in and beyond, and then to guiding them throughout the process to right-size that product that they're accessing from us so that they're always getting the maximum value proposition so that their perceived benefits outweigh their cost. And that is how you maintain your customer base. And that is how you expand. We call it landing and expanding, right? That's how you expand within your customer base. Well, you know, it, it, it's funny. The, um, I think we've talked a lot about facility uh, and place and uh, marketing and all that. But when it comes down to it, there's a huge migration that the process of officing which is an activity now, not a, not a, not an, it, it's a verb, not a noun. We don't go to the office anymore. We, we practice the activity of officing is really become a service business as opposed to a facility business. And so in looking at things from the service perspective, I think is, is very important. And when you look at, um, community and you talk about community, uh, you talk about a, a, a larger client that might say, I need 50 workstations for 50 people. They're going to cycle in and out of your space or anything. They're going to be rubbing shoulders with maybe 50 people from another com company doing that. This is a totally new phenomenon. In the past, we built walls with moats around them uh, where we isolated. I work for IBM on our campuses out here and, and we're, we all wear blue suits and we all have red ties and you know i'm an ibm person um we all have these i'm doing that because i don't want to make fun of google right now but uh, uh you know we, we isolated the workers of a company and built a very rigid culture around that and today it seems like certainly in the world of, of flexible workspace we're intermingling the cultures of various companies and having the individuals someone from IBM or Google might be sitting next to someone from Microsoft who are each there on a certain day of the week. And the sharing that goes back and forth socially, certainly they won't be sharing business secrets and things of that nature. They shouldn't, but the social sharing and the cultural sharing is very interesting. It's the first time that's ever happened in business. And I think the whole flexible workplace sector is responsible for this massive dynamic change in cultural structure. I think you're right. I think the, and I think that honing that and massaging that and making sure that as leaders, as thought leaders, that we help to uh, craft that community in that way. And so, for example, there have been a couple of times where we have turned away deals, large deals, because we felt that that one individual company would have too much of a presence and domineer or take over the culture. And so we made a, the financial decision to invest in the long-term uh, longevity or, or the, uh, of, the, of, of the culture by turning away that large deal. Now, I don't think everybody does that, um, uh, but we are invested, yes, in, in, in making sure that we are nurturing that culture and that there's uh, an equilibrium of voices uh, within, the, within the environment. Well, I think that um, 
one of my watchwords has always been balance mm. in all things. Uh, and I think is that when you look at that, um, that you do need to balance your community. You also don't want to get overcommitted to a single company uh, because when that company leaves, you it's kind of a really yeah. sad day. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you, you do have to watch how you build your own customer uh, mix and everything as we go overall. You know, we talked a lot about human to human, human to human, human to human, empathy, uh, understanding, uh, et cetera. Artificial intelligence is coming, baby. Uh, the bots are here. So how is artificial intelligence going to impact that human-to-human structure? How is, are the, the bots, the proverbial elements that will shape a lot of content in marketing and in relationship development, um, how will that impact everything that you're thinking about and impact we know it's going to impact the future of work. That goes without saying. But what do you think the, the impact of artificial intelligence will be? Actually, we've just engaged with a platform called Eularity. And Eularity is this really cool. Um, it, it, it was founded in uh, 2018. And <clears throat> it uses AI uh, to optimize your paid digital campaigns. And it uses AI to help you to create your social feeds and your social content. And it's very neat. And in addition, we're also using a chatbot. Now, when I say this is that I think that um, right now in our court category and as a marketer, um, we require a human touch, a human touch in making these decisions. And so while I will use AI to guide the my pay digital buy. So to guide where my money is allocated in terms of whether it's in social or remarketing and retargeting or Google, traditional Google pay per click or GM, you know, uh, GMB, I will use AI to guide that. And it will also, uh, select, um, the, the ads that are, um, uh, performing best and the headlines that are performing best and the visual creative that's performing best. But I think it requires that human to oversee it and to handhold it. So for an example, with this particular feature that uses chat GPT to create the social ads, what it does is you put in a question and then it draws from your website and it draws from uh, uh, other input to build your social ads. Um, because content as a marketer uh, can and 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 all work is the king of content. Um, the best practice of content is specifically, um, I mean, beyond the future of work. But content for most marketers is really the death nail. How do you get all that feed of content? And so we're using uh, AI and ChatGPT to guide that content and to fuel that content. But I am insisting that my marketing team reviews it, has a hand-on, and adapts that to make sure that we are truly reflecting our brand and the needs of the consumer. And finally, from a, a chatbot standpoint, you know, a lot of people are talking about, well, in order to have an appropriate chatbot, I need to man that chatbot or woman it, whatever. There has to be a live human at the end of the chatbot in order to make that effective. And the answer is no. From a marketing standpoint, for me and what I've experienced is that once you shift from the static form, which is the not conversational marketing, once you shift from the static form on your website, 
into a chat bot. And if you create workflows that actually guide uh, the, when I talk about being a guide in this process, right, we need to guide our um, uh, prospective customers through the process of making an office-related decision. So if you create a chat bot with a workflow that guides that dialogue, then what you've done is you've wrapped up the need, that objective need in a bow for the salesperson who's trained in consultative sales, who's trained in uncovering the subjective pain that your prospect is feeling. And that marriage is nirvana because you're driving in a tremendous amount of lead flow. You're increasing the, the percentage of people that convert from visit to inquiry and you've given your salesperson, uh, again, who's, who's appropriately trained, the ability to uncover the uh, subjective need in addition to the objective need, make that, human make that human connection and solve the problem. So AI, yes. Handhelding by individuals, yes. <laughs> For right now. Yeah, I know. Uh, two, two co comments I want to make. First, I completely agree with the, the need to use AI merely as a tool, not as a replacement. Yeah, not yet. And a lot of people are going, oh, goody, goody, it can do this work for me. No, it can't. It can't think for you. What it can do is certain tasks more quickly and more efficiently. And, and it's doing that very well because we, we've embraced it also. The other point, uh, not point I want to make, but comment I want to make, is I've never heard the term marriage and nirvana in the same sentence before. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> uh, so I'm done with it. And that, on that happy note, uh, um, uh, we're running long a, a little bit, Andrea, and I'd love to keep this going on forever. Um, but uh, uh, I do want to thank you very much for participating with us today. And also, I want to let everybody know that Andrea will be joining All Work as one of the voices of the future of work as, a, as an ongoing contributor. Uh, to uh, the All Work team, and we're very excited about that and very grateful to you for the thoughtfulness of, of all the work that you do across the industry. Thank you for the opportunity, Frank. I'm really excited to join the team as a, as a contributor in that way. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Our pleasure. The Future of Work, again, next week. Take care. If it's impacting the future of work, it's in the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space.